So we are continuing uh, our walk through the letter to the, the Colossians today. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going through verses 15 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that. Um, but but uh, before we start, I just wanted to point out that uh, I know a couple people were struggling to open up the Google Doc and to see our Sunday School material and also our small group notes. Uh, so if you were having a problem with that, I went in and I just got a new link to that Google document. Uh, I don't know if something changed or what, but I posted that online. So if you weren't able to get in earlier, uh, there's a new link on our Facebook page uh, and you should be able to get that to work and open it up and get the small group questions there. Um, but if you were able to open up and you notice that the title uh, it, for this week is Who is the King of Glory? And if you're reading through this section, you may wonder where I got this title from. And I know what you're thinking. If you have to explain the title, it's probably not a good title. And you might be right. <laughs> but my reason uh, for picking this title is because when I'm reading this section, what I see is a royal entry. Uh, in other words, whenever you're watching a movie or a show and you see this person listing out all the names and accomplishments and character of this royal person that they're introducing, and that is what I see here. And when I saw that in the scripture, I, I couldn't help but think um, throughout the whole week as I was preparing for the sermon of that song, Who is the King of Glory? And I actually included a link of, one of, the, of a version of a spoken word by that in the small group notes. But that, that is just what I heard the whole time I, as I was preparing is um, the, the question is, who is the king of glory? And this section seems to answer that question. It's like a royal uh, entry. And I, uh, instead of just telling you that, though, I, first I want to show you why I see that. If you will turn uh, to a section that we read last week, actually in verse 13, it says, He has delivered us, talking about the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And then what you see in this section is it, it's explaining who is this new king of ours? Who is this beloved son of the father? And you see at the end, and then after he does all this, he says, of which I, Paul, became a minister. A ser in other words, a servant of the gospel. And this is the king that I serve. And why I say servant is because that word minister right there, it's diakonos which is where we get the word deacon as well as minister. Um, but all it just means is to serve. The idea is like a table staff or a waiter, but someone who serves. And what I find interesting about that is Paul is proclaiming this about Jesus, and he's saying like his authority to proclaim it isn't, by the way, because he's an apostle. It's because he is a minister of the gospel and his king is Jesus. He's proclaiming this as a servant of the king. And what that means is each of us are also a servant of the same gospel who serve the same king. And if we read through the New Testament, we see uh, this theme where we are called to do exactly what Paul is doing right here, to proclaim our king. In fact, elsewhere we see that we are called to be ambassadors to the world around us. Um, but before we go too far on that, by the way, proclaiming our king to those around us who don't know him yet is a good thing we should do. 
But I want you to take note who Paul is proclaiming him to. And what we see is he is proclaiming this King Jesus to other believers. And I think that's something we have to remember is that the gospel is not just for the lost, although it is, it is also for believers. And part of being in the church and encouraging one another and edifying one another is to proclaim the gospel to each other on a daily basis. So we are reminded of the hope we have in Jesus. Um, But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this section. And when I read it, I want you to have that image of being introduced to a king. Paul is just a servant introducing us to the king, Jesus. So let me read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to us. I am in awe of Jesus and the preeminence and the glory of your son. And I pray that as we studied this word together that you would make your son known to us and you would show us his glory and in the process we would be transformed in jesus name amen now i read through that whole section of scripture so we could get a feel of the weight of this uh, royal entry this proclamation that paul uh, is giving but i'm actually only going to preach through verse 20 today uh, and that's just because this is so dense Uh, And I think that that last half um, deserves its own time to explore fully. It is incredibly weighty and dense and important. So I'm going to let Joe, uh, Pastor Joe, preach that to you next week and finish up this section. Um, But honestly, even this beginning part is weighty enough and, and, and just so full of theology and depth and beauty. Uh, And so even in the very first part of the first sentence, we already have so much to preach on. So read this again with me in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, just that statement, what does this even mean that he is the image of the invisible God? Well, you see, human beings have at their center a big, big problem. You see, human beings are part of creation. 
So on our own, we could not hope to comprehend an eternal God who exists outside of time and space and exists outside of all that he has created. How can us time-bound creatures, physical creatures, hope to even begin to comprehend an eternal spiritual God who has created everything and was not himself created? How does that even make sense to us? The only way we can hope is by God revealing himself to us. And so we see in the beginning that God actually did that with Adam and Eve, and he would walk with them in the cool of the day and make himself known to human beings. But then the worst struck. As we know, as we continue reading the Bible, that human beings rebelled against God and separated ourselves from him. If God, who is the source of life and the source of all of our meaning as created beings, how can we possibly hope to reconnect to God? We separated ourselves, but we cannot possibly, in our own efforts, through our own mind, even begin to penetrate uh, our understanding of who God is. We know that God, in his kindness, Uh, revealed himself in his creation so that by looking at the earth around us, we can see, yes, there is a God. But even though in his creation, he gave us enough to know that God is, we're in trouble because it is not enough to know who God is. And so to overcome that, God has revealed himself to us. First in his scripture, but we know ultimately And what the scripture is pointing us towards is the ultimate revelation of who God is, is in his son, Jesus. In other words, God himself became a human being for our sake, so that when we look at Jesus, we know God. In fact, if you were reading along at the end of John during the Easter season, you will see Jesus himself say this. Oh, On the night before he was arrested, uh, we see that one of his disciples said to them, if only you would reveal the father to us, we would believe. Jesus goes, what do you mean? How can you ask me that? If you have seen me, you have seen the father. And so God in his kindness, even though we separated ourselves from all hope of ever knowing our creator, bridged the gap for us, the gap that we could never bridge. And he became a human being so that we might know him. And when we look at Jesus, we look at God. When we get to know Jesus, we get to know God. But that's not the only thing. Uh, When I see this word, I'm automatically drawn back to Genesis again. The image of the invisible God. What else does that remind you of? Well, when God created human beings, he said he created them in the image of God. And so I will say that this is um, my interpretation. Uh, There is debate whether this is what this means. But when I see this, I can't help but go, if we are made in the image, what is the image we're made in? And I read here and I go, man, we were made in the image of Jesus. We're made in that image and the image is Jesus. So not only does Jesus reveal God to us, he also reveals humanity to us. Each of us has lost part of our humanity in the fall. We have become corrupted and we have not lived up to who we fully are, who we were fully created to be as human beings. But Jesus is the only human being who has ever lived perfectly. In many sense, he is more human than any of us have ever been. 
And so when we look to Jesus, we also understand who we are and who we are supposed to be and who we are going to be when he comes and restores everything. In other words, who is this king of ours, this new king? He is the image of the invisible God. He reveals God to us and he reveals ourself to us as well. Um, but even though that is debated, whether the, the image is connected to the same image in Genesis, we still see a connection to creation because as we go on, we see that he is the image of the invisible God and he is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, I want to pause right here for a second. You see, this is one of the most amazing descriptions of Jesus. And just every time I read it, I'm in awe and worship of him. But the irony, too, is that every single arch heretic, it seems, in church history goes to this verse, screws up the interpretation and says, see, as if to prove their own point. So this section of scripture has been butchered so many times in church history that what I want to do in this sermon is take time to pause and go, this is how it has been interpreted wrongly. And this is why we know that that is not what that means. Uh, Because the thing with heresies is even when we disprove them and they seem to go away for a while, they just keep popping up in history with a different name, but the same teaching. turns out that our enemy doesn't have to get creative if we keep falling for the same things over and over. So I want to spend this time with you and explain the truth of what it's saying. But when we have done that, I want to go back to the verse and see the beauty also. And not just the the theological argument, but the beauty and the depth of the truth of it. So this firstborn, this firstborn of creation ran into problems with this guy very early in the history of church by the name of Arius. And Arius taught, oh, so if he's the firstborn of creation, that means he was himself created. In other words, Jesus is the first of all creation, and he is better than all the rest of creation, but he is himself part of creation. And we know, uh, and I'm trying really hard not to go on a church history soapbox, so I will discipline myself here. Um, But we know that this is not true. We know this, one, because all the rest of the New Testament and scriptures point to the fact that Jesus is himself fully God. Yes, he is also fully man, but Jesus is fully God and fully man in a way that his Uh, humanity does not take away from his divinity and his divinity does not take away from his humanity. How that works, honestly, this is a mystery that is tougher for us than I think even the Trinity. Um, But we know that it is true because God says that it is true. Uh, And just on that note too, a lot of people object when, um, as critics of Christianity, that we take our truth because it's been revealed to us and not because we have somehow reasoned it. Uh, But the fact is that is, it's a disingenuous argument. Every human being has our understanding based on things that have been revealed to us. Think of our understanding of history. None of us have been alive during the Civil War or the American Revolution or events earlier, but we don't doubt that they happened. Why? Because we've been taught, in other words, we've been revealed that this is what happened. The only difference is that while historians all have different interpretations or are liable to error, our scientists who are constantly evolving their theories as they get more information, we have been revealed this truth by the only being that is all-knowing and perfect. In other words, we can be more sure of this 
than we can even of the events of our own history. Not, not that we can't be at least somewhat sure of them, obviously, but we can be more sure of this because of who is revealing it to us. Um, but back to this problem of Jesus being part of creation. If we take this line by itself, we might come to that understanding. But let's keep reading. We see four. Now, this is why, as much as it pains me, grammar and sentence structure is important in the Bible. When we look at that word for, we can also maybe interpret that as because. It's kind of the same idea. In other words, he's the firstborn of creation for because by him... All things were created. And just so you don't can get confused to think he is exaggerating when he says all things, he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority. By the way, the Bible does not repeat things flippantly. When the Bible repeats things, it's getting our attention and drawing us in. In other words, what it's saying, when he says all things, he means all things. Everything that ever existed or ever will exist is encompassed in all things. And what does it say about that? Well, it says that, that for by him all was created. And not only by him, but if we keep reading, uh, all things were created through him and all things were created for him. This is... This might shock you, but if all of creation was created by him and for him and through him, that means he himself is not part of creation. He is, in fact, the creator. Jesus has created all things. And now that we have kind of pushed Arius aside for a moment and see what the truth of scripture is. Think about the amazingness of the statement that all things were created by him and all things were created for him and all things were created through him. Jesus is amazing. He is, as it says, preeminent. In other words, he has a level of superiority over all things because it was all created for him, by him, through him. But that's not even where it stops. If we keep reading, not only is it created for and by and through, but it, it says, and he is before all things. Now let's examine that closely. It says he is before all things. Now this, just in the English of it, it could mean two things. It could mean he as a, a time kind of linear thing, he is before all things, which is a true statement. G the son of God is eternal. So he existed before all of existence. But in this context, I think that it is talking not so much a time, um, but it is talking about a priority. In other words, Jesus is first. He is the thing which all things were created for. And the reason I think that is uh, one, because unless the Bible is communicating something about the eternality of God, like when it says that, uh, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, uh, God choose, usually communicates uh, to us in a way that we understand. In other words, as time-bound creatures, he communicates to us in a way that makes sense in time. And so he says, he is right now before all things. So it could mean time, but the reason I think it's priority is because as we keep reading, it says, and 
in him all things are held together. So we have before that, we see that all things were created for him. And now we see that he is first. In other words, he is before all things. Um, but it's, it's that next statement that really makes me pause whenever I read it. In him, all things hold together. I mean, think about what that means. I think in Acts it says, um, when, when Paul is preaching to the Areopagus, it says that in him we live and move and have our being. Everything that exists, every single one of us exists in Jesus. He holds us together by his thought. Which, which is kind of a crazy statement that we were created for him and yet he is doing the work of holding us together. And every breath we take, every step we take, every action and every word, it is sustained because of Jesus. What an amazing, amazing um, but in that, too, is another concept that we have to get our heads around. And that's this idea that even though we were created for Jesus, it's not because of some need in and of himself. You see, God, uh, the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, has no need. He is fully content before he created anything. He has no need for us. Now, I remember teaching this to our junior high uh, and most of the junior hires, they just took that. Just one of the, the um, attributes of God is that he has no need. God does not need us. Uh, and most of them, like I said, just took it. But I remember one student thought about it, and it clicked. She goes, wait a second. That's not fair. I'm like, finally, someone gets it. Because when we think of someone not needing us, that's hurtful. When another person says, I don't need you, that's meant uh, as an attack against them. But that's because we are thinking of human relationships. God created human beings to need each other. In the beginning, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. We are independent creatures made for community. But when we're talking about God, he has no need for us. But that leads to something better. He does not need us, but he chooses us. It says that even before the creation of the world, he chose us. And you know, in human relationships, being chose uh, and not needed can feel scary because human beings are um, the newest whim could decide they don't want you anymore, right? That's what human beings are. We're constantly changing. We're growing close to people and growing apart from people, natural course of life. But we, what we know about God is that he is unchanging. He always was and always is and always will be the same. He exists outside of time. In other words, we are held together, yes, not because he needs us, but because he wants us. But we can be sure of our existence because the strength of his unchanging character. What an amazing thought. This is our king. But then it goes on. <laughs> it continues even more and more. And the next thing it says is that he is the head of the body, the church. I want to say this statement, which some may feel controversial. You, if you um, say you love Jesus, 
um, but you are disconnected from the church or you don't like the church, you're lying. Jesus said he is the head and his body is the church. You cannot love the head and not love the body. That's not an option given in the scripture. We, Jesus decided to so closely connect himself with his bride, with his body, with the church, as to be the head and we are the body. And because of that, we cannot reject one without rejecting the other. And I realize if you come from a Catholic background, that may hit, kind of, hit you kind of wrongly. And I understand. Um, but there is a difference between hierarchical structure and the church. Yes, let's not throw it out altogether, though, as Protestants sometimes do. When the Bible describes the church, he does describe elders. Uh, he does describe deacons. He does describe man hierarchy to a certain extent. But they all report to the ultimate head, Jesus. Uh, and so when we... But, so that doesn't mean that some self-proclaimed head of the church uh, who, who is trying to, I'm not going to go too far, <laughs> who is in error and who is corrupt, that doesn't mean we just have to obey them because we have to obey them, right? Um, but it does mean we have to connect to the church, no matter how imperfect it may seem at this moment, no matter how much they may hurt us, at this moment. Yes, the church is made of imperfect people being made perfect. And so in the meantime, we have to struggle with people sinning against us and us sinning against them. Part of being sanctified as a body together is learning to forgive and be forgiven. Because we cannot reject the body without also rejecting the head. He goes on though. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is where another heretic raises his head. So I'm going to pause for a second. He is the firstborn from the dead. So uh, a guy by the name of Nestorius, living after the time of Arius, said, okay, well, we know that the son of God is fully God. He is not a creature. But we also know God can't die. So to be the firstborn from the dead, how does that work? And, and so his thought was, well, there was the son of God and he became onto the human Christ. He um, kind of like uh, filled him or, or whatever. So you had two creatures. You had the son of God and the human Christ. And so the human Christ died, but the son of God did not. Jesus is one person, fully God, fully man. He is not two people. The scripture is clear on that. Because think about what that would do to our gospel. God did not himself become human at that point, nor did he suffer in the same way we did, nor was he tempted in the same way we did, nor did he actually take the sacrifice of death on himself. Instead, he just possessed a human being to be his vehicle uh, and then cruelly left him as he was being uh, sacrificed. The Bible communicates that God humbled himself. He left his eternal throne to become a human being. He did not become less God. Of course, he was still fully God, but he humbled himself and became a human being. Not only at that point, but we know that he is chosen to be a human being for the rest of eternity. As we keep reading the scripture, we see that he is still fully human, glorified now at the right hand of his father, but still a human being. 
What an amazing grace that God loved us so much that when we separated ourselves from him, he joined us where we are at. He felt all the indignities and pain of being a human in a fallen world. And he suffered that all while not sinning himself. This is the heart of the gospel. And if we do not hold to this, we lose our gospel. But we see that he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus led our way. We do not have to fear death as followers of Christ because Jesus paved the way for us to be reborn. This is the king we serve. And it goes on, it says, for, another connecting word, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So there's a connection between him being firstborn from the dead and this next, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now the wording I found in the ESV was kind of hard to grapple with, like what is this sentence actually saying? Um, so I actually pulled up a couple different versions to see if I could wrestle it out. And I found, you guys might understand it fully, but I found the NASB helpful. So this is what it says there. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. In other words, what it's saying is it is the Father's pleasure for the son to enter into humanity fully so that the fullness of God would be dwelling in human form. Divinity and humanity were united together in the person of Jesus. And it was because of the father's good pleasure. He enjoyed it. He wanted it because he loved us. And not only that, but it was his good pleasure that through this God man, through Jesus, that he would reconcile all things. To himself. There's that word again. There's that term, all things. In other words, all of creation. And we think of reconciliation rightly as God reconciling us sinners to himself, but he's going further. He says that he's reconciling all things. Why would he say that? Because when human beings sinned and fell, all of creation suffered for us. And swept in death and disease and famine and disaster and everything else that affected all of creation. And God is saying, all that you have destroyed in the fall, I am fixing. What an incredible kindness that us and our selfishness and our cruelty rebelled against God and destroyed his creation. And yet God is saying that every single ounce of sin and corruption that has entered the world, he is reversing and reconciling to himself through the person of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we talk about. And then it goes further though. You see, yes, he reconciles all things, but that the heart of the gospel is his chosen creation. That is human beings. And so it says in the next verse, uh, or sorry, not in the same verse, but continuing the sentence, whether on, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want to examine two things here. One is, what does he mean by making peace? Well, if we look to the verse uh, just below it, it says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind. 
In other words, we didn't just fall away and get lost from God. No, we have, as human beings, actively rebelled against God. The very being who gives us all of life and all of goodness, we have decided to make war against him because we hate him. Left to ourselves, we hate God and we absolutely rebel and make war against him. Now, I don't want you to think of a war where both sides have casualties. We've rebelled against God. The only one who can lose that war is us. And yet God in his kindness makes peace by himself. It says that it was his blood. It's Jesus's blood that makes peace. Now, one of the accusations against Christianity that I'm hearing more and more of, and at first I just didn't respond to because it seemed ridiculous, but it keeps happening. So apparently it, it does resonate with some of you, is this idea that the Father, if this is true, that Jesus had to die for our sins, then the Father is cruel because he um, punishes the Son for our mistakes. Why can't he just forgive it? Well, first off, I want to say that People who say that are deliberately forgetting that God is Trinitarian. When it says the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, that is the wrath of the Father, that is the wrath of the Spirit, that's also the wrath of the Son. He chose to pour out his own wrath on himself as to take our punishment for us so that we didn't have to take it. This is not cosmic child abuse, this is incredible kindness and mercy that we have never deserved. But I also want to take this idea because many who say this, they just don't grasp the seriousness of our sin. Remember before when I said that all of creation is held together by Jesus? Think about this. Every action we take, it, we are only allowed to take it because Jesus is holding us together. The, the crazy thing about that, that means our sin as well. We can only continue sinning because Jesus allows us to continue existing. How can a loving God not also be a just God when he holds all things together in his existence? Our evil demands a response. Otherwise, God is not just. But we know that he is. We know that our sin and our evil and our hatred and violence against one another demands a response. And the only way we could ask that question is because we haven't fully comprehended how awful our own sin is, how violent and how evil we actually are in our hearts. But when we begin to realize that and we see that the punishment for our sins was not heaped out onto us, but it was heaped out onto Jesus himself, he took our punishment in our place. This is the good news. This is the king we serve. The king who became a human, who humbled himself for his people, for his servants, who actively rebelled against him. He still took their punishment for them, even though it would have taken no effort. He would have just had to stop holding them together. There's no way we could have won that war. And yet in his kindness, he enters into our humanity and he takes our punishment for us. That's the king we serve. The one who humbled himself for us and died for us and who loved us this much. And that is why I am incredibly honored to be his servant. Like Paul was his servant, like you are his servant. 
And I want to remind you today who the God we serve is. The only true response from that can be just a humbled life of worship to our God, to our King, Jesus. So with that, what I want to do is I just want to close us in prayer. And if you do not yet know this Jesus, I encourage you to email us, to call us, to whoever else you know in the church, reach out because this is our king we serve and he is a great king and I want you to be in his kingdom as well. Um, but I'm going to close this prayer. Father, thank you so much for the love that you had for us, that it was your good pleasure to send your son, Jesus, to enter into humanity and to take our sins for us and to die in our place. That is an incredible mercy that I can not even fully comprehend. Uh, but I pray that we would meditate on it today and this week and for the rest of our lives and that we would be humbled and transformed by this truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.